Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and we'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 11. And if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud, beginning in Luke chapter 14, verse 11. This is what the word of God says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He, Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your neighbors or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets And lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We started reading in verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 14 says this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the central point, really, behind everything Jesus has been saying since we first started in Luke chapter 14 when we got back into our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke just a few weeks ago. Everyone who exalts himself or herself in this life will find that they will be brought low, that they will be humiliated in the life to come. But those who are aware of their sinfulness, aware of their unworthiness, aware that they deserve nothing but judgment, but also aware that they've received nothing but the unmerited favor of God, the saving grace of God through Christ, well, we're humbled. We stand before the cross of Christ and see how much our sin costs, and we see a Savior who, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him endured the punishment that we deserve. Now, disinterested kindness was a concept the Pharisees knew nothing about. 
disinterested kindness. What we see Jesus doing for us on the cross is an example of disinterested kindness, if you will, or disinterested favor, meaning he's doing this, but he's not doing this for us because he'll get something in return from us. He's not saying, if I do this, they'll do that. Or if I do this somewhere down the line, they'll owe me. He's not saying that at all. Disinterested kindness was a concept the Pharisees knew nothing about. Everything they did was selfishly motivated, either to raise their status in the eyes of others or for reciprocity. Uh, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Remember, I invited you to this, so then later on I can call in a favor. It's incredible scorekeeping, but it's still a zero-sum game because if you're winning, you're only winning for now, because then you're going to go, you offer a favor, or you do this, and then you owe someone, and they owe you, and it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Disinterested kindness, kindness just for the sake of being kind, was something they knew nothing about. And this whole meal, this whole Sabbath meal, the whole gathering, the, the invitation extended to Jesus, the invitation extended to the man who had dropsy that we looked at a few weeks ago, all of it was selfishly motivated. And so Jesus introduces a novel idea to them in verse 12. Look at chapter 14, verse 12, where he basically says, don't invite those who can repay you, invite those who can't repay you. That's radical hospitality and radical generosity, where he says, uh, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. He's saying, I see your motive, I understand your heart, your mind, the thinking behind this. If you really want to be generous, if you really want to be kind, if you really want to be like my heavenly father, Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, which is a great picture for us as to what Jesus did for us. We are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the blind. We could never repay Jesus for what he has done for us. And yet Jesus paid it all. Hallelujah, Jesus paid it all. And we owe him nothing, and he did it, why? To glorify his Father and to serve and to love his people. And we're very, very, very blessed. And so Jesus can put his money where his mouth is. Because what Jesus is asking them to do, he was going to do in a much grander way than just a feast. But he was going to die for those who are in spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy, who could never repay him and do it all for the glory of God. That's radical hospitality and radical generosity. Take a look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this was kind of a toast of sorts. And at first glance, it seems like he's just saying, here's to everyone who will enjoy the kingdom of God. And you can picture everyone saying, hear, hear, amen, and glasses clinking, and everyone drinks to the glory of God. And it was that. But it wasn't just that. Remember, understand the context in which this takes place. It's 15 verses into a chapter which only contains Jesus telling the Pharisees that they were too self-centered, too selfishly motivated, too proud to ever enter the kingdom of God. But they still fully expected to not only be at the heavenly feast, but to have club-level seats. And Jesus responds with a parable. And he said to him this, beginning in verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now, let's just stop right there. Uh, Jesus uses two adjectives to describe this banquet 
in verse 16. It wasn't just a banquet, but a what? A great banquet. That means it was huge. That means it was lavish. That means of a, think of a lavish gala event. Think Godfather opening scene wedding reception. The, the second adjective that paints this picture is the word many. He didn't just invite friends or family or just whoever could maybe come in at the time. The man threw a great banquet and invited many, many people. Pick it up in verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now take another look at that verse. It actually troubled me as I studied this week because it didn't really make much sense Because if you look at it again, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything now is ready. That's not one, but two invitations. Why would you re-invite those who had already been invited? And here's why. Uh, Invitations to events like this would typically come in two stages. Uh, The first were were similar to invitations we send today in that they informed recipients of just a little bit of information, but not all of the information. So perhaps you've received an invitation in the mail that says, save the what? Save the date, right? Save the date. So on this day, this will happen. But the details of it, uh, exactly the exact time, the exact location, uh, not, we don't know that right now, but save the date, save the date. It's a, it's a, an announcement of sorts. This was actually the opposite. Uh, they would send an invitation to people and say, like, hey, this event will be happening in the future. So, heads up, we're going to have a wedding. We're going to have a banquet. We're going to have a party. The event is happening, but we don't know exactly when. And that is foreign to us, particularly living in the 21st century and particularly living in the West. But there were complexities that preparing huge banquets and parties like this came with. And it took time for the details to come together, quite frankly, especially Food, since shelf life was way shorter in those days than it is now. And so you didn't go in on a cow with your friends and family and put it in a deep freeze with the Glens. You shopped for today. You slaughtered for today. And so when the food and the wine and the servants and the seating and the DJ, probably not a DJ, but when all the details were nailed down, then in verse 17, you send someone to those who had been invited to say, all right, it's time. Remember that event we told you about before? We didn't give you the date and time, but we told you about the event. Maybe told you about the place. It's going to be at so-and-so's house. Great. Now it's time. We're ready. We'll see you there. And so that's what's happening in verse 17. When you send someone to those who had already been invited to say, let's go, soup's on. Uh, Look at verse 18. Uh, Verse 18 says, but they all alike began to make excuses. Now, if you've ever thrown a party or gathering of some sort, inevitably, there are people who intended to be there but don't end up making it, and likely some who never RSVP'd and show up anyway, right? That's not uncommon. People forget to reply, but they plan to go. They mark it down, and so they show up, but you weren't expecting them. Or people replied in the positive, saying, I'm going to be there, but then either they forget or something else comes up, and then they can't. So there's there's a certain amount of flexibility that comes when you invite people where you get almost the right amount of people who are coming, give or take a small margin of error. What would have gotten the attention of the people that Jesus was talking to and telling them about this particular party was how verse 18 
is worded. Look at verse 18 again. It doesn't say they began to make excuses. It says they what? They all alike began to make excuses. All of them. Everyone who was invited began to make excuses. Like I said, it's normal for some people to bail. But all? They all alike began to make excuses? That never happened. Not to a banquet. Not a great banquet such as this. But that's what the text says. And the excuses they gave were, quite frankly, pathetic. Take a look at the excuses that Jesus says they gave. Look at verse 18. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Question. Who buys a field sight unseen? Who buys a piece of property and says, I'll check it out later, but yeah, here's my money. I'll sign the deed right now. Do you want to see it? Ah, no, I don't got time. I'll check it later. I'll do it during the banquet. It's a lame excuse. It doesn't make any sense. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. Five yoke of oxen. It's a lot of oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Question. Who buys an expensive piece, in a, a piece of equipment? Like he didn't buy five yoke of oxen as pets. He bought them for his, as, to use in farming, to use for work. These are work animals. Who buys an expensive piece of equipment, or maybe just a car, some big ticket item, and then takes it for a test drive? Lame excuse. Look at verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, the Pharisees had an awfully low view of women. Awfully low view of women. Wives would have never, like ever, dictated to their husbands what they could or couldn't do. There's no reason that if you've married a wife, I have married a wife, verse 20 says, and therefore, in light of what I've, therefore, in light of the fact that I've married a wife, I can't be there. But that would have never happened. And so all of those invited gave excuses, and the excuses would have been, as you yourself have proven, laughable. I mean, they make no sense at all. How many of you have ever received uh, invitations to an event, a party, a wedding, a gathering of some sort that, that warranted inviting, warranted invitation, and you're asked to respond, and one of the options you have is to decline with regret? Raise your hand. That's been something you've ever, you've ever seen on an invitation. Decline with regret, right? Or it says regrets only. Like, we'll assume you'll be there unless you tell us that you won't be there. So you only need to let us know if you're not going to be there. I, no harm, no foul, if that's how you rolled with invitations. This might be how we've rolled with invitations. I don't do all the inviting in our house. Isn't it a bit presumptuous? Like, decline with regret. Like, let's be honest. For events you aren't attending, 
and you're declining, are you always declining with regret? You're not always declining with regret. Maybe you've already planned to do something way more fun than that event. You're declining with great pleasure. Uh, like Sarah and I, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary in November. Uh, in January, uh, Lord willing, we're going to go on a cruise, just the two of us, to celebrate our anniversary. We're looking forward to it very, very much. Anything that I get invited to that week, I'm going to decline. Not with regret. Like, no, I can't think of something that you would invite me to that I'll be like, oh, I got to go to that stupid cruise with my wife, just the two of us for a week. Oh, man, that's declining with regret. Why can't you decline with pleasure or decline with excitement? Maybe you don't have strong feelings about not being able to go. Why can't you decline with indifference? Why can't there be a, a you, you accept or decline, and then it's like, and tell us how you feel about it. Like, just, eh, I'm kind of thrilled. Now, you're laughing. The text doesn't say, but I don't think it's too much of an assumption to think that some in the crowd listening to Jesus tell this parable would have been laughing. Uh, either because they found it legitimately funny that people were using these excuses, or because Jesus was creating such an awkward tension in the room with this story that someone would nervously laugh. We all, you might be that way. You might know people like when it gets, ten, when it gets tense, it's <laughs> people laugh nervously to try to break the tension in the room as their heart races inside of them. It's, it's probably not way too far outside of, the, of what we see in the text to assume there could have been laughing right now. Here's the thing, though. To the master in the parable, this was no laughing matter. Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Right? Hey, I went, told the people, it's ready. They have all alike said they're not going to be there. And they gave these reasons. The guy wants to check out the field that he just bought that he's never seen. The guy bought five yoke of oxen, which he bought them, but he's going to go look at them. And another one got married and blah, 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 all these excuses. And verse 21 says, he reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became what? Angry. Angry. The title of the sermon is Decline with Regret. Which brings us to our first point. Point number one, declining Jesus' many invitations will lead to deep regret. Declining Jesus' many invitations will lead to deep regret. What Jesus is doing here is painting a picture to, to those who heard back then and to those of us who hear and read right now as to what happens when people decline the Lord's invitations to come to him, to come to the greatest banquet that he's ever prepared, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we who believe, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ and know he loves us, that we are looking forward to with great anticipation. Jesus is painting a picture of, to those who are hearing back then, but also to us as to what happens, how God feels, what happens when people decline the Lord's invitations to come to him. Now, we haven't really discussed the end of the parable yet, but I'm going to skip ahead to ensure that we understand this rightly in the time that we have today. 
The master of the house represents God. He issues invitations. He presents opportunities for people to come to him. The great banquet represents salvation, and the invited guests represent the Israelites who received, watch, that first invitation, which contained no date and no time, but a sure and certain event throughout the Old Testament. From the Old Testament prophets, Messiah is coming, and you're invited to know him, to love him, to be saved by him. He is coming. God will get all the details right, but get everything in order. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Israelites had been invited, invited for millennia. And now Jesus is here. John the Baptist told them, it's time. This is it. Here he is. And they didn't believe. Jesus himself said, it's time. This is it. Here I am. And despite having been invited, they not only declined the invitation, they weren't only disinterested, but they wanted to kill him. And here's the thing. This is where the rubber meets the road. We're looking at an account of what took place in the first century. And today, 20 centuries later, the same thing happens. Time and time again, the gospel is presented. The offer of salvation is made. Jesus is preached. And people are told, today is the day of salvation. And yet, time and time again, Jesus is ignored. For quite frankly, laughable, pitiful excuses. Remember, the master of the house represents God who issues the invitations to his great banquet of salvation. In verse 21, those who were invited gave their excuses and he became angry. Declining Jesus' many invitations will lead to deep regret. We see this throughout the Old Testament. In your outline, you'll see Isaiah 33 and verse 14. Just as an example, the sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling, and has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? These are sinners who do not have their sins atoned for. Sinners who will pay the price because they have not received, accepted, put their full faith and trust in the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Luke 12 and verse 5, we read this earlier in our series throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. That's a big deal. <laughs> That's a big deal because so many times throughout the scriptures we're told what? Fear or fear not? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, Paul tells us in Philippians 4 and verse 6. When the God of the universe is telling you not to be afraid, but he's like, but except here you should like, be so afraid. We pay attention. Luke 12, 5, Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. I'm going to tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Keep your finger or your place somehow in Luke chapter 14 and turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Toward the back of your Bible, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Uh, 
pick it up in verse 26. Look what the writer of Hebrews has to say. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Look at that verse. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Which, quite frankly, sounds pretty hopeless. Which, you're not wrong if that's how you're reading that text. If we have been presented with the truth of the gospel, here's the way to be saved. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for sinners like you and like me. But then, as verse 26 says, but we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? That means that you're rejecting the one sacrifice that could work. Like, you have one way that you can get into heaven, but you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that thing. I don't buy that. It's going to be another thing. It's going to be my good outweighing my bad. It's going to be uh, me doing all the right things and checking the box. Well, Jesus paid it all, actually, and you could, ah, no, that's not, I'm not going to do that. And so the writer of Hebrews was like, okay, well, if you've received the truth, and you're like, ah, it's not my truth, that's your truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice. Like, we don't have an option B. We don't have like a little footnote that's like, but if you don't like Jesus, we also have this other way. Verse 26 is there, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but he goes on and says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is what awaits those who are like, thanks, but no thanks to Jesus. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Meaning anyone who, who breaks the law, the law of Moses, he's like right here, horizontal, right here on earth. Anyone who's like, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm not going to keep the law. Uh, they die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that's the case on earth, uh, verse 29, how much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Look at verse 29. Let's just look at some key words there. The one who has trampled the Son of God, profaned the blood, outraged the spirit of grace. Now you understand why in the parable... The master of the house became what? When he heard the excuses of people were turning down his banquet, the master of the house became what? Very angry. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then closes out this portion of scripture, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To be saved by his hands? When he opens his arms and invites people and we run to him? That's a glorious thing. To fall into his hands. To not want to be in his hands but get there anyway. The writer of Hebrews says it's a, it's a fearful thing, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Now, 
I want to say something, and I want to say it, and then explain it, lest you go deaf after I say it, because you can't believe I said it. Aren't you glad you're sitting? Okay, so I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to explain it, because it goes against, I think, popular belief, against Christian culture, something you're not going to find cross-stitched, like anywhere, on some piece of home decor or on a like a poster with Jesus' face on it. This is not... So here we go. God, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to take a drink of water. Just let it settle in. God will hold a grudge against those who consistently, repeatedly, decline his invitations. Now let's stop, and let's breathe. What I said was God will hold a grudge against those who consistently, repeatedly decline his invitations. And then I invited you to breathe, which unless you've fallen over, you have done. I used the word, the word grudge. That might be a hard pill to swallow and hard to hear. If it is, I want to offer you two things. If, if you just can't, I can't fathom using that word, that's fine. You may feel better. You might want to scratch out that word if you've taken down that statement or, or scratch out that word because it's in the questions in your outline and replace it with grief. That's fine. God will hold a grief against or God will be grieved by. In fact, I'll even grant you that grief is a more biblical word than grudge. But what I said was God will hold a grudge against those who consistently, repeatedly decline his invitations. And here's why. If you looked up the word grudge right now, if you were to Google it or look it up, you would find a definition that reads something like this. A persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. A persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. In that sense, the word is used rightly. However, that might be hard to picture God holding a grudge and that's because when we use the word grudge in reference to ourselves as Christians, we almost, I think we always use it in the negative. And that's because we can't rightly hold a grudge because we are imperfect fallen people. Holding a grudge against someone else who is like us and that they are also sinful and fallen. And so when we hold a grudge, we are wrong. When we hold a grudge against somebody else, we are categorically wrong because we are sinners and they are sinners. But God is perfect. He's holy. He's 100% pure and altogether lovely and has never wronged anyone ever. Therefore, when we wrong him, which all of us have done, right? The Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we wrong him, and then he says, here, like he initiates, here, I've made a way for us to be reconciled. And we say, no. And he says, come, and we say, I really like my life without you. And he says, I am ready for you. Look, I've sent my son to die for sinners. I'm ready for you. I have sent him. I'm satisfied with the payment that he's paid. Come, come. And we say, you're ready for me. I'm not ready for you. And we say that for our whole lives, consistently, constantly, never believing, never accepting, never placing our faith and trust in him. God says, fine. But know this, Hebrews 10 and verse 
30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Even verse 24, at the end of that parable, the master who is God, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They are out. If you decline an invitation to my party, to, to Peter's party, I'll, I'll probably understand. You were busy. It came at a rough time. Maybe you just didn't want to go. I feel you. I get it. God doesn't get it. He's not, I get it. They don't want me. Sure. Said God, never. In the parable, the master becomes angry. And do you see what he does? He actually moves on to other people, people who aren't too proud to accept his invitation. In fact, he moves on to people who likely would have never thought they'd be invited. Look back at Luke chapter 14 and look at verse 21. He said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. In other words, get the people who would have never thought they'd be invited. Don't just invite them. Look at the text. Bring them in. Verse 22, the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. There's still room. The master's not satisfied. He says, he says, go out to the highways and the hedges. Literally, like people lived on the street. Go to the, the homeless. People lived in the, under the shade of trees. People who had no home whatsoever. Go out to the highways and the byways and the hedges and the trees and to all the places that invitations would never reach and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. It's more than just inviting. He's bringing them in. Verse 23 says, compel them to come in. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And God invites. He patiently invites. He invites repeatedly a precious fewer people who've ever only received, especially living in America, who've only received one invitation, one shot at the gospel, one shot at Jesus. But those who decline God's invitation to party accept their guilt and his wrath and the punishment they deserve, which is why everyone who declines, declines with regret. And they may not decline with regret now. They might decline with indifference. They might decline with excitement because they love their life without Jesus. But the Bible tells us that eventually, all who decline will decline with regret. Which leads us to our second point. Don't make excuses that lead you to decline with regret. Now let's look at the excuses that Jesus listed in the parable. When Jesus invites you, don't let capital cause you to decline with regret. Luke 14 and verse 19. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. Capital, things that are worth great value, tangible things. Earlier in Luke chapter 9... Uh, we're told to another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first, me go, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, which sounds like a reasonable thing to ask. Like, I've, I'm so wanting to go with you, but I've got to bury my dead dad. Like, this does not sound unreasonable. 
But when we looked at the text, and I don't have time to get into it, we realized he wasn't just wanting to go and bury his father. What he was wanting was the inheritance that came with burying his father. His father hadn't died because he wouldn't say like, yeah, my dad's been embalmed and he's just sitting around waiting for me to get there. That didn't happen. And so he was wanting all the trimmings that came with burying his father. In other words, I'll follow you after my dad dies. I'll follow you after I can get the inheritance that's coming to me. So many times people decline Jesus' invitation because of things, because of money, because of things that they hold precious to them. And for some reason, which we'll get into a little later, they think, no, I can't let go of this. I can, I can be okay with Jesus, but making him number one, putting all my faith and trust in him, all my eggs in that basket, no. Please have me excused. When Jesus invites you, don't let comfort cause you to decline with Regret. Luke verse 14 and verse 18 says, They all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Don't let comfort, the comfort of what you own, the comfort of whether the thing is actually a, uh, something designed to make you comfortable or just the comfort that comes with knowing you have what you have. There was an acrostic that I read in a book a long time ago, and I don't exactly remember where I read it. It's not mine, but it's in your outline for comfort. Comfort opposes ministry, but faith offers radical transformation. The comfort of knowing the sure and certain next step, the comfort of knowing where your peace is on something on this earth, my, my, uh, my funds, my home, the things that I have stored up, Getting your comfort there, when you, when you sit in the lap of some sort of comfort or luxury, you very rarely see your need for Jesus. Finally, when Jesus invites you, don't let companions cause you to decline with regret. With regret. Luke 14 and verse 20, another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So many times people, are, but if I go... If I accept Jesus, if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, these people will be unhappy. I will have to cut ties with these people or, or I will, uh, they're not going to understand me. They're not going to want to hang out with me. I'm going to lose my relationship with these people. And so people choose relationships that are temporary over relationship with the eternal God. Now, to some degree, capital, comfort, companions tend to be in some way the reason people reject Christ. But it's not that people have to literally give up their capital, have to literally sacrifice every bit of comfort, have to literally cut ties with everyone they know and love. It'd be very rare is that someone's like, listen, I want to invite you to accept and understand the truth of the gospel. You just got to get rid of your home. Like, that's, that's not typically how the altar call goes, right? Like, we don't, listen, I want you to invite you to accept the truth of the gospel and, and come to Jesus while you can do so, because today is the day of salvation. I just need you to go and never talk to everybody you've ever known again. Like that doesn't, that's not typically how we roll. That's not even typically what's required. But it's the capital or comfort or companions that have such a grip on their hearts, it serves as a block between them and Jesus, and they decline Jesus and stick with what they know and love. You know, we tend to celebrate communion as a church family 
uh, once a month. It's, that's our practice. We celebrate communion. We celebrated it, I think we celebrated it last week. And usually when I explain communion, and I trust when the, all, all the campus pastors explain communion, we explain what it represents, what we're celebrating, and we invite everyone to celebrate if they believe in Jesus. Not if they've had a perfect week, not if they've never, nobody's perfect, but if they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, whether they are a longtime member of our church family or this is the, the very first time they've been in our midst, we say, we want you to celebrate communion. But also, then I used to say, but if you're not a believer, and I'll use some terms like if you're kicking the tires or if you're, you're just seeing, if you're checking out Jesus, let this time pass. Let those of us who believe celebrate. But I'm so glad you're here to be under the preaching of God's word to understand the gospel. But also consider why don't you believe? And so I would ask you to do that now. Without communion, what about you? If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I know it's the, it's the cool thing to say, it's all right, it's in your own time, and it's fine, everyone does their own thing, and it's a very personal decision. Not today. I'm looking at you and saying, Why? Why would you turn down so great a salvation? Why would you neglect the opportunity to come to a God who has literally never, ever wronged a single person? A God who every day provides sunshine and oxygen and food and sustenance for the just and the unjust, for the saved and the lost. And on top of that, then has said, you are far from me. You are not like me, you are a sinner. You are unholy. I am holy. Uh, me, you. In fact, I get me, you. But I will make a way to make it right. I will send a sacrifice. I will send a perfect sacrifice. And, 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 and get this. That perfect sacrifice won't be just any lamb. It will be the lamb of God. That perfect sacrifice won't be any substitute. It will be my one and only son. And I'm going to send him to live a perfect life. In fact, I'm going to send him through the womb of a virgin. I'm going to check the box on every single Old Testament prophecy that was ever made about the Messiah. Every single one of them. Take it to the bank. I'm going to nail every one of them. And he's going to live a perfect life. And then he's going to die on the cross for sinners like you. And then I'm going to raise him from the grave three days later to prove that he died on the cross for sins. Check. I accept it. God says, I'm I, I accept the payment that he made on behalf of you. And then I'm going to raise from the grave to, to prove that death doesn't have the victory, but I do. And that's the good news of the gospel. And what I'm telling you today is, if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if today you're like, I don't know if I, and I'm, look, I'm saying why. Because today is the day of salvation. Because Jesus is inviting people to his banquet. Because Jesus has a banquet with tons of, table, tons of, of, of seats at that table. Because Jesus died on the cross for sinners, not for the religious, not for the pious, not for the proud, but for, the, for those who would humble themselves and see themselves as in need of a savior.
And I would just tell you, if you are the person who sits here not believing, not today, not me, not him, ask yourself, what excuse are you giving, and is it, quite frankly, with all due respect, as laughable as the excuses that these people gave in this parable? I'll do it another time. I have my job. I have my relationship. I have these things to worry about. Instead of putting your faith and trust in Jesus, which will, will certainly cost. But friends, I'm telling you as one who has already done it, it's well worth the cost. Because the reward far outweighs the cost. The reward of being right with God far outweighs the cost of discipleship, which we'll look at even next week, Lord willing, as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke. Don't be someone who declines with regret. Don't be someone who declines with indifference, who declines with excitement. Be someone who accepts the invitation of the Lord and does so with great joy and great trust in Him to save to the uttermost. And that's our final point. You need to know Jesus continues to welcome all those who accept his invitation. That's how, the, that's how the parable ends. The master of the house becomes angry, but not angry enough to cancel the whole party, right? Not angry enough to say, you know what? Forget it. Keep the food. Keep the wine. Get rid of the table. I'm not doing this part. People are going to not come to my party? No, 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 no. No, he says, bring in other people. Bring in people. I've got, I've got things to share that I want to share. I've got salvation. I've, he's got a banquet that he wants to share with anybody who would come. And so instead of crying over spilled milk, he's going to move on to people who will come and offer the gospel and offer salvation and invite people to be saved, to come in, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to not receive the punishment they deserve, but to benefit from the fact that Jesus really did pay it all. And so what about you today? Think of you standing before a holy and righteous God having declined his many invitations versus standing before a holy and righteous God and saying, I'm here because you invited me and you paid my way. And there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Here's what I want to do as we close. I would like to invite you to, if you would, uh, close your eyes. I'm going to invite our worship teams at all of our campuses to come up at this time. And here's what I would like to invite you to do. If you are a believer, I want you to think of a few things. Would you just call to mind the days of your unbelief? The days before you accepted Christ's invitation? 
If you were young, call to mind the folly of your childhood. If you were older, call to mind likely the folly of your ways. And would you take a moment and thank God that he not only invited you, but gave you the grace and the wisdom to accept. Would you call to mind someone who perhaps you know that has repeatedly, constantly declined the many invitations that God has given for salvation? Would you pray right now that they would not continue to decline with regret? While there's still time. And finally, if that is you, uh, if you are the person who continues to decline and yet hasn't felt the regret, would you pray that God, in his mercy, in his sovereign grace, would move upon your heart in such a way that he would draw you unto himself, that he would go out to find you along the highway, along in the hedges, and that he would compel you to come in, that he would draw you nigh unto himself. Because all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father in heaven, we come before you now grateful Grateful that you are not just a judge with a grudge, but that you are a merciful, kind, and loving Father who invites all, all to come to him, all to be saved, and who made the way. Didn't say come to me, but find your own way here. Who made the way by sending his son. Lord, would you draw people unto yourself even now, young and old, near and far. Even if they've been declining your invitations thus far, that they would not ultimately decline with regret. That your house, as the master of the house said, your house would be full, full of people who in and of themselves could never eat at that banquet, but that you have made a way because you have paved the way. Work in hearts and minds right now to draw people unto yourself for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.